Hi, welcome to One Degree Shifts. I'm Pascal Tremblay. I'm your host and I'm the co-founder of Nectar. We're a psychedelic support ecosystem. And on our podcast, we have intimate conversations exploring psychedelic wellness and the journey that comes with it and what it means to integrate psychedelic experiences into daily life. And today I'm an honored and really excited to talk to Joseph Mays. He's an ethnobotanist. He's a program director at Chakuna's Indigenous Initiative, Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative. Hi, Joseph. Hey, Pascal. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. And where are you calling from today? I'm calling in from uh, Northern Virginia. Actually, uh, I am at, at the moment, I'm a guest at my parents' home, but I live in uh, Northwest DC, Washington, DC. But uh, I like to think of this area as the Chesapeake Bay watershed, um, which is a, you know, a basin that's created by the Appalachian Mountains and then uh, goes from the Potomac River in the north that goes through DC down to the James River, which used to be called the Powhatan River. And this was the Powhatan Nation, which is an Algonquin speaking uh, confederation of indigenous communities. Um, and I feel like this is the closest thing to a, to a home that I've found in, in, in my life. So where are you again? Remind me. I'm in Kaslo, the native lands of the Tanahe people and Sinai people in the Kootenays, um, about nine hours east of Vancouver. It's a beautiful area. It's actually an area where um, indigenous people used to come and do ceremonies, and they didn't actually live here. They would just come here to do ceremonies. Um, and so it has a very kind of um, potent power underneath, uh, underneath it as well. It's a beautiful space. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this place so used to be called, oh, sorry. I was okay. just going to say, yeah. uh, they used to call uh, this area Senecomica, which is uh, means like densely populated. So a lot, this has always been a happening place. You can tell us more about um, Chakuna's ERI program. At Nectar, we love the program. We support it. And you know we want to spread as much awareness about it as possible because it's such an important mission. Uh, yeah. So uh, as you said, ERI stands for the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas, actually. Uh, and it is a, a network of uh, indigenous and local community organizations. There's 20 of them that we've funded since 2021. Um, in 2020, I started developing the program and the goal was to create something that uh, would allow for the burgeoning psychedelic industry, the so-called renaissance, um, all of the investment and in energy that's going into it uh, to direct some of that back towards indigenous communities, towards uh, the conservation of biodiversity, which is best accomplished by supporting indigenous and local peoples. Uh, and so we also wanted to make uh, a fund that was ground up and controlled by uh, the communities themselves. Uh, so the, the money and the resources and the distribution of funds is all in the hands of the community organizations. And they, they also manage their own projects and we're just supporting their work rather than creating a, a project. And so, uh, wanted to make something that wasn't linear and top-down and conditional in the way that a lot of philanthropy is uh, with, with strings attached to the funding uh, and make it something that's truly grassroots where the power is also with the grassroots. And, um, 
Yeah, it's it's 20 organizations from uh, the United States, Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, Ecuador, and, and Brazil, and Peru. Uh, and it really began with uh, the community that I did my field work with for my master's in ethnobotany. Uh, I studied in the community of Sachopen, which is in central Peru. Uh, this is a, a Yanesha community, and the Yanesha, um, they're from the Ar Arawakan language family, but they also have some uh, markers of Quechua in their language and um, their their community has been encompassed by a biosphere reserve uh, in in the past 12 years and they share territory with Ashaninka and and I just uh, spent a long time with them really learning how they're uh, thinking about and confronting the forces of globalization around them which is the eco cultural tourism industry and uh, the coffee industry and the psychedelic industry. So um, all of these different market forces um, are wrapped up in the displacement in the um, you know loss of uh, the exploitation and the extraction uh, from indigenous communities. And so you know the communities are aware of their issues very deeply. They have deep experience with this uh, going back to you know, the beginning of the colonial era and uh, really having respect and recognition for their agency is really important to the work that I do and the work in Erie is based on supporting the autonomy of indigenous communities. So they're all dealing with different um, crises, but at the same time, all of the different communities we work with are facing similar forces and um, developments and they need similar things, which is uh, material support but in a way that that supports their own autonomy and their own agency. Uh, and that is kind of seen as the, the most effective way to um, be an advocate for indigenous people, but also the best way to support and, and raise uh, funding, raise support for their work. Uh, so that's the basic summary. Mm -hmm. Beautiful mission and so needed in the world. And I'm curious from a personal perspective, Joseph, why did you feel so compelled to dedicate your time and energy to such a, a beautiful mission on a personal level? Yeah, there's there's so many things that, that play into it for me, but I have a, a love of nature um, that goes back as far as I can remember. Um, my dad was in the military, so I, I moved around a lot when I was a child. Every couple of years, we would move to another country, another state. I was born in Florida, and then we moved to Scotland a, a few months later, and and that's where I, you know, learned how to walk and talk. And, I, and we were living in the countryside uh, there, and actually, uh, where I am now, this region used to be part of the same landmass as. Scotland, the Caledonian Mountains, and and the Atlas Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains were one mountain chain um, before the Atlantic Ocean existed, and so it's it feels like I've been on one piece of land almost uh, this whole time, and and I I feel very connected to that, and uh, I have ancestry there in, in Scotland as well, and um, you know I, I kind of had this uh, beautiful few years um living in that in that countryside and and connecting with you know my mom's garden herb garden and the animals uh around and um 
And then I had the opportunity to experience that a few more times um, when I was in second grade. So I guess six, seven years old, my, my mother homeschooled me because we didn't have access to, to a school and we were in uh, Germany. And, um, you know, we used to do all sorts of like natural history projects. I would go um, identify different, uh, you know, seeds and, and cones and uh, learning the difference between the, the, you know, the juniper berry and then uh, other conifers and going to the pond, um, you know, raising tadpoles into frogs and then, you know, re-releasing them. And I, I really became so, in, I fell in love with that and, and always wanted to do something related to it. I loved just the, the inquiry of it. It was very inquisitive. Um, but, you know, I started to also learn that things aren't going so well for uh, the biosphere in a lot of ways. And why is that? And what are the causes of it? And how can I uh, do something to, to impact that? And um, over time, I, I, you know, I, I, I developed the an interest in biology. I decided environmental science, I wanted to be like a marine biologist um, because a lot of our environmental crises are concentrated in the um, water cycle and the oceans and the um, wetlands. And um, eventually mm -hmm. I, I went to, to my undergraduate and um, I wanted to go to art school, but I ended up doing a bio major. And, and then I had a, a elective as a, in, in anthropology and had a professor, Edward Absey, who um, studied with the Mazatec in, in Oaxaca uh, when he was younger. And he taught a, a course on ethnography. And I started, you know, getting really into reading ethnographies and trying to sort of uh, get into a different cultural perspective, a different way of relating with the world and with other people. And uh, I ended up dual majoring uh, in um, in anthropology as well. And I was working in horticulture. I was working in like regenerative agriculture, permaculture. Um, I worked at an ecological reserve and uh, in, in Ecuador, my first time in the rainforest. But I also had this people-oriented culture and community-oriented calling. Uh, I did, you know, an ethnobotanical survey with the local community and uh, the ecological reserve was very conventional. Uh, it was, you know, owned by some pe people from the United States who purchased some land with the intention of pr pr protecting it um, and restoring it. And it actually had a big impact on the local community because the, the water in the Camarones River um, was positively impacted by the presence of the reserve uh, further upstream. And uh, it was, it's the last remaining, uh, pocket of rainforest in that region. And, um, when I was eventually in grad school for, for ethnobotany, everything, this is when everything became kind of, uh, distilled for me, which I was studying at the, the school of anthropology and conservation, but it's actually like a lot more divided than it sounds. Uh, the conservationists, the bioconservationists, have a certain approach and then the social anthropologists have a, a different approach. And, uh, I was at a PhD defense 
by an anthropologist who studied in South Africa with a, a community that had been displaced by the creation of a national park and lost access to their water, to, you know, their places where they would gather and hunt. And, um, you know, they were trying to be optimistic about the reserve because it was something they didn't have any control over. Um, but the effect that it was having was, was really hard to, uh, to hear about and learn about, but for the conservationists in the room, they were like, good, this is exactly what needs to happen everywhere. And, um, this is the strategy of conservation that many environmentalists are familiar with, which is also called fortress conservation. And it's like the Yellowstone model exported from the United States to other countries. And it involves, you know, removing people from an area, creating a wilderness reserve preserve, uh, and in my work at, in ethnobotany, I've actually come to, to find that the data supports a different approach, which is that actually in indigenous territories, in locally owned, community owned forests, um, there is greater biodiversity and greater carbon storage and greater species richness and all of these things that uh, are actually more in greater abundance in those contexts rather than in a national park or forest uh, preserve a nature reserve. Uh, and so the, it became clear to me that the best way to, uh, serve the mission of, uh, dedicating myself to the well-being of the environment of the earth would be to support indigenous communities. And, uh, it just became the same, uh, goal. I mean, the same path, one in the same, the pursuit of conservation of, of nature, of biodiversity and then culture and, and human and community diversity. And, uh, I really came to see those two things as, as unified and inextricable. And so, uh, that had a, a different way of, of relating. And, uh, it's only recently that, that we've come to a point where, where that understanding is sort of just accepted that, that we are, uh, separate from nature and the best we can do is mitigate harm. Uh, and that's just the unfortunate truth that everyone needs to accept. And I think we have to get away from that and, and try to see that actually human communities being healthy and thriving is what is best for the earth as well. Um, and it's one community. Yeah, and when you speak about the, around the reserves, it's very fascinating to me because it kind of depicts kind of the Western view of things, which is, you know, a very black and white thinking, very rigid and very kind of, you know, fortress model you mentioned to me speaks a lot about the way we approach things in the Western world. Um, and I'd like to touch on the statistic or the science that you mentioned before around uh, the conservation aspects of uh, indigenous-led communities. Can you speak about that? Because I believe it was a research and it, it came up with like kind of like a summary of the findings of the research around locally indigenous-owned um, communities and how it affected biodiversity. You want to talk a little bit about that for those who haven't read it? Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a, a huge number of studies that have been done um, by environmental anthropologists, uh, ecologists that have come to this same conclusion. Um, the work of uh, Agrawal, A-G-R-A-W-A-L, uh, is a researcher who's done a lot of 
a work around this in Southeast Asia and India, um, showing the same thing. There are other researchers in Amazonia, Miguel Alexiades. Um, I'm speaking mostly to, to the anthropological lens, but there's just a uh, hard data quantifiable, uh, you know, ecological studies that have shown this and demonstrated this in, in many different contexts. If you look into the biocultural approach, um, if you look into biocultural diversity, any studies around, around that term, um, you'll find a lot of support for this, uh, this point of view and, and the data that, that shows, uh, those findings, um, throughout the world. Um, and then on top of that, there's also the, the correlation between biodiversity hotspots and then, uh, indigenous territories, um, which is also, if you, if you look up that connection, you'll find, uh, plenty of, uh, studies. And there's also, uh, I think a recent article that summarized some of these findings was published by Manga. Uh, they have a good website where they publish, uh, you know, shorter versions of, of articles and, and journal articles, studies that, that talk about some of these findings and. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where does the psychedelic space come into this, this mission, this vision of yours and Chikuna's vision around indigenous reciprocity? What is the role of psychedelic? How did psychedelics play a role in the creation of Erie? And also how are psychedelics um, playing a role in the work you're doing now and in, in, in the local communities you're working with? I think right now, or at least at the beginning, I just saw psychedelics as a way to uh, open up this conversation with people, with the audience that's interested in psychedelics. Uh, everyone's attention is on psychedelics. How can I um, use that as an opportunity to highlight these issues and, and also try and speak to some of the blind spots within the psychedelic community, communities around the use uh, and the practice of psychedelic medicine. Um, can I use this as a, as a way to, you know, explain, uh, explore, inspire, um, and educate around, you know, the, the struggles of indigenous and local people, um, the, the actual, and also the steps that might actually practically pragmatically have a, meaningful impact on, on that. And then how can you carry that forward in your, in your own pursuits in the psychedelic space? Um, I started using psychedelics or I entered into a relationship with psychedelics at a young age, uh, in high school. And the experiences I had always opened me up to a greater sensitivity, um, greater sense of connection, uh, and sort of an awareness of perspective and my own perspective and the perspective of every other being of, of every other, you know, point of attention in the universe. Um, and then becoming very interested in how, how to bridge different perspectives, how to communicate different perspectives. And that kind of naturally led into the, the scientific and the, the anthropological inquiries, uh, that I made. And, Another part of the psychedelic experience that a lot of people talk about is just this greater sense of connection, interconnectivity, um, interdependence, 
this dissolution of separation, kind of seeing that really we're all connected in some way uh, and feeling that and, and, you know, really experiencing that as, as a reality. But then you come back from that experience and you're still in an alienated environment, isolated, atomized. You still live in a cultural and economic system that doesn't feel or recognize that connection and interdependence. And, uh, and then it's really hard to integrate in, in that context. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I think that that's also at the root of, of the environmental crises that we're facing, the ecological crises, the cultural and social economic crises is that, that alienation. Uh, and, you know, you can't just, you had that experience, but when you're back in your, uh, your daily, you know, quotidian, it's hard to embody that, to uh, feel that way still after you come back from that experience, can you still feel that connection and still see and recognize the, the personhood of, of other beings, other things that before would just be inanimate to you. Uh, you saw them breathing. You saw, you recognized some awareness around you that you're not the only point of awareness. Um, and actually it's all one sort of, um, ecosystem and, I think the, the, the answer to that is really like daily practice and moment to moment practice. And you can't just decide to change the way that you feel and experience the world and see the world, uh, especially when it's something so deep rooted and unconscious subconscious, uh, it takes daily practice, consistent practice to start to feel and see and experience things differently. Uh, and I think that that goes beyond just sort of an intellectual or even a individual spiritual change of perspective worldview. It's, it's something that can affect everything that you do and work on. And then if you're building something, can you build something that reflects that understanding that you have, that you've been trying to integrate and embody? So for example, if I'm building a, a reciprocity initiative, um, can I do it in a way that reflects my ecological and relational understanding that I now have and feel about the world and, and nature, ecology, uh, culture. And to do that, I have to build something that's not linear or top down, but it has to be grassroots mycelial, you know, rhizomal, uh, something that has a distributed, uh, intelligence, um, that, gives autonomy to the different actors and that recognizes that we're, uh, that me sitting in my position working for a nonprofit in the United States am entirely dependent on indigenous and local people and the, the environments that they steward because biodiversity is what supports all of us in everything we do. And, and, what supports biodiversity is indigenous and local people and communities. And so it's just sort of like a logical progression to, to get to this point. Uh, but I think that that sort of change and, uh, can be applied to almost everything, um, building a business, building a practice. Um, you know, if you're in healthcare, if you're in, um, men working in mental health, uh, whatever your 
dedicating yourself to, um, we're all looking for ways to integrate the understandings that we've had, um, that are creating such, such beautiful, you know, breakthroughs in mental health and, and treating so many different conditions. Uh, yeah. And, and I think really the, the, the way that psychedelics plays into the, the work of Erie is Erie is a way to embody and integrate and act on those principles, those insights that have been gained through the psychedelic experience. And it also recognizes the continuity that modern you know, contemporary psychedelic science has with indigenous communities, because there would be no psychedelic science without Abram Hoffer and, and um, Humphrey Osmond, you know, sitting in Native American circles and ceremonies and coming up with the term psychedelic and, and sort of sparking off an entire movement, uh, not to mention all of the medicines that are directly coming from indigenous practices and the models in therapy and uh, um, all of the research, scientific research and knowledge that comes from indigenous science and indigenous and having respect for that, honoring that, and then honoring our relationship with the global South as a whole, um, the seeing that this psychedelic industry is not separate from the larger industry, which is built on unequal exchange with all of the communities and nations where um, psychedelic science comes from, all of the places where our natural resources come from, uh, and just seeing that that's part of the, the picture and uh, how do I honor that understanding now that I've recognized my position in this system of relationship, which in some way, in some cases is revealed through psychedelic experiences, but uh, recognizing that you're in relationship with everything else, that you are just something that exists in relationship. And that that's true for us, our communities, our cities, towns, countries, uh, movements. Um, and, you know, wh what role do I have to play in that uh, with the position that I have, the gifts that I have? So I'm uh, doing my best to, to figure that out. But Erie is part of that for sure. As beautiful as within, uh, as without, I believe the saying goes, or as within, so without, um, yeah. which is this idea of like the inner ecology transpiring into the external ecology and uniting together in one whole and, and connecting with that, that sense of uh, unity is a big part of the psychedelic wellness journey. Um, I'd love to explore a little bit more around the psychedelic space um, and what are ways that it can enter into a better relationship with the global self, especially um, what are ways with Chakuna, for example, that you're helping bridge that and what do you see in the future around um, opportunities that uh, we can all take steps towards? Yeah. I think that a lot of people, um, there's a, a researcher, Nicholas Powers, writer, uh, professor, uh, who I met at a, a symposium in Minneapolis called Big Psych. And uh, he he gave a talk and, and he talked about, you know, uh, what to the marginalized is the psychedelic renaissance? What does it mean 
to, you know, my neighborhood? Uh, what does it mean to, and then for me, it, 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 it became, what does it mean to the global South? Uh, what to the global South is the psychedelic Renaissance? Because, um, a lot of people are really excited about the promise of psychedelic therapy and, uh, all of the different products that will be on the market. Uh, and it's not really the, the question of accessibility of, um, uh, benefits to more than just those that are already privileged and, and have a certain level of wealth and ability to enjoy these, um, advancements. Uh, that question doesn't get as much time at, at the conferences that I've been to. Uh, and it's really difficult in the United States too, because we don't actually even have any level of, uh, universal healthcare, uh, publicly funded, uh, social, uh, welfare really. And, and the problems of, of lack of food security, uh, of lack of clean water, lack of basic things, food and shelter and, and healthcare are all barriers to people, um, ever, you know, experiencing the benefits of psychedelic medicine in any context. And those are structural issues that we need to confront. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see a lot of more of the creativity and, um, you know, just amazing ingenuity of people in the psychedelic space dedicated to those problems, which we really have to, um, face if those promises of the psychedelic movement and Renaissance are ever going to be enjoyed by, by more than just a few people. And just uh, recognizing that and and seeing you know what are the challenges that that are preventing us from getting there uh i think a lot of it seems like untouchable um structural tendencies that we can't affect as individuals or even as small communities um you know the like i said before it's like an all-encompassing cultural and economic system it's hegemonic it's inescapable and one little fund or initiative isn't going to change that. What I would like to see in the psychedelic space is what are ways that we can build things that challenge those structures within whatever limitations we have. So if we're working as a business owner or an employer, can we make it an environment that's gra as grassroots as and ground up as possible? How much, you know, democratic, participation is there for everyone involved. Um, what is the structure of the, of the, the way that, you know, profits are shared? Is there a reciprocity component? Uh, and I think people are asking these questions themselves and, and looking to the leaders in the community to, to show that they also care about them and they're, and they're actually interested in building something that's not just top down or exploitative overly extractive um and there's lots of experiments going on i think erie is an experiment in that in pursuit of that uh and the more that that happens the more pressure there is from the ground up to to build things in that way and even if you don't really care about it you, if you have uh, if you hope to succeed, you're going to have to at least show your consumer base and your audience that you care about those things. Um, and yeah, I think I have hope in, in a growth of that 
of that sort of awareness and demand by people to, to see that, to see more community-based, community-led, um, community-owned, community-controlled um, projects and, and, you know, more equitable distribution of resources and um, more attention to those supply chains and those, you know, chains of, of relationship and, uh, you know, the, the indigenous communities that are impacted by the psychedelic industry are, you know, experiencing a lot of the same things that non-psychedelic industry has been, um, engaged in for, uh, hundreds of years. And, and this is just the newest market, the newest sort of, um, face of, of, an, over, of a fundamentally exploitative and extractive relationship that the global North has. Uh, and it's a big issue. It's a, it's a huge problem or a huge, it, it's an idea that's hard to even imagine being able to impact. But I also believe that, you know, individual actions are really powerful. Um, we have to think both locally and, and systemically and, and, think about both individual and collective action. And if we've recognized our position within this ecosystem um, of relationship, then we also have the power to, to act on that recognition and, and understanding. And, and I think uh, that, that, that also comes back to this idea of community autonomy. So the, the way that Erie is built to support autonomy primarily because there are these big structures that are seemingly untouchable, but the more autonomy that we have as individuals and communities, the better we can confront something like that. And so indigenous communities, especially if they have more autonomy, more um, stability and control over their resources and their communities and territories, then when those big structural forces come along, they are in a better position to, to navigate that. And so they're, they negotiate relationships with outsiders, with outside industry, with tourists, with other people all the time. Um, and they're going to be in a better negotiating position, the more autonomy they have, and they can dictate terms to, uh, anyone that wants to, that's interested in their resources, whether that's, you know, plant medicines or, or knowledge, culture, uh, land, and I can't stop the, those forces from, from being there, but the more autonomy that communities have, the better they're able to, to confront them. And the more that that grows, that autonomy, you know, the more we're moving in a direction where we can really change those big structural things that are, uh, part of the situation, not just our individual behavior and, and actions. Yeah, beautiful. And I, I, I'd like to touch a little, a little bit on the business side of things because I've always had this this project in mind with Nectar around like Nectar being a living organism that is a surface for integrating our psychedelic experiences. Like how can we best reflect the insights we've got from psychedelic experiences into an organization and looking at the smallest of relationships from that lens and trying to 
do our best to undo the ways that uh, are not honoring interbeing or honoring interconnection. And so it's looking at smaller things like how do we have meetings? Like how do we relate to uh, people that we connect with as partners? Like how do we create offerings that are accessible? Like there's so many different little things that are really like a, a great space of contemplation for people out there running businesses or being part of that is a beautiful journey of, of, of healing really and, and, and um, both personally and collectively. And so I like what you said around the small actions leading to big things because I truly believe that um, the psychedelic space has an opportunity to really help redefine what conscious organizations look like and how we operate in the world. And that starts always from within. And so it's an invitation for people out there to, to really explore that concept of, of interbeing, which we're going to talk about uh, shortly, but um, the psychedelic space, in my opinion, should, um, you know, have the highest of ambitions in regards to integrity and reciprocity and collaborativeness as well, because it's those kind of qualities that are eventually, like you said, going to undo the systems of oppression and um, the systems that don't serve us anymore. So there's a really deep journey for all of us to explore there within the, the work that we're doing. Alan Watts, um, he said, billions of years ago, you were a big bang and now you're a complicated human being. The law of interbeing um, says that everything is connected to everything else. So that means that we ourselves are a relationship. Uh, we're not a separate being having relationships. So we're a totality of all the relationships. And so the word interbeing, it really invites us towards a, a shift to a new story that's more beautiful, that's more connected, that's more harmonious um, with the wider community of life. So it's really a reorientation of uh, the ego to eco and uh, accompanying interbeing awareness is a really a core concept of many psychedelic journeys. You know, one of the core uh, or main things that people have been surveyed around what they've gotten out of a psychedelic experience was a sense of unity and a sense of higher consciousness. Um, how do you relate to that word into being and what does it mean to you in your life? Yeah, well, you put it really beautifully. Uh, I think thinking of ourselves as a relationship rather than a a self or a being that's in relationship, um, understanding that the self is actually just a, a relationship and that, um, we're just existing in relationship and there is no, uh, there's no separating anything from the things that it's in relationship with. I mean, my English words are, are betraying me because I have to keep saying thing, but no, no self can be identified that's separate from the other selves that you might point to around it, or even the, not, what you might not consider a self, like the, the land or the other, the water, the, the physical geography. Um, you can't describe, Alan Watts also said, you know, you can't describe somebody walking without also describing that they're walking on something. And then that is connected to something else. And it's just an endless chain of, of connections and relationships. And then that's really what, what we are living in all the time and in and our ego, which allows us to navigate through the world, um, can sometimes give us the impression that we are actually a, a separate self, uh, when really, uh, that's not the case, but we are still in a unique orientation within that relationship. And so that's going to guide, you know, the decisions that you make as 
a point of awareness um, and as a being. Uh, something that I learned from uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who who wrote uh, Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, and she's an ethno-indigenous uh, from the Patawatomi Nation. Uh, and she she was asked about like appropriation and and if we're if we're trying to embody that interbeing does that mean that we need to adopt other practices from other cultures that that reflect that because we don't have that uh it's hard to to get there um if we're living if we don't have that cultural conditioning or education and um i remember that she, what she said was, you know, what one of the things that is commonly associated with indigenous practices that reflect this interbeing is gratitude to the land, um, expressing gratitude to other beings, gratitude to that relationship that that you've recognized, and that that is something, you know, that's the the core and basis. But you can express gratitude in in, in a number of different cultural contexts, and so if you're if your intention is to do that, you do it within your cultural framework. So that's what it sounds like you're doing in, in, in Nectara, trying to integrate things into that culture and community that you're building and that you're coming from and, and moving into. And, you know, that doesn't have to look exactly the same way as it looks in, in another culture. Uh, but it's still coming from the same source um, and the same understanding that of interbeing. Yes, like exactly. Um, and it speaks to, you know, I believe, and I think you've mentioned that earlier as well around like disconnection being one of the main ailments of societies, disconnection to self, disconnection to others, disconnection to the web of life. Um, and I, I, I've seen it a lot in, you know, ceremonies and psychedelic experiences, there is a fair level of indigenous teachings and practices that get built into the ceremonial space because it comes from a space of interbeing and it's, it comes from a lens of often our own culture doesn't quite have the same practices and ways of, of viewing the world. And so we're, we're faced with this idea of really wanting to honor into being in, in our practices, but also not having the teachings and not having uh, the embodiment of those things within our own culture to be able to express that from a space of authentic origin. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? So I'm not saying that cultural appropriation is great. Let's just borrow everything, but it's, sure. it's, it's something that is very prevalent in this space to talk about cultural appropriation. And it's a, it's a very hot topic these days. Yeah, well, one of my teachers, Belinda Riacho, uh, speaks about a, appreciation versus appropriation, and I've seen that that kind of dichotomy used a few times. And respect uh, is one of the missing components when appropriation is is um, identified. And I think it's ironic that the tendency to disconnect to disconnection and alienation is sort of manifested in this attempt to like pick and take things from indigenous practices and put them in, in something else and cut them off from their roots, remove them from their cultural and environmental and community contexts and put them somewhere else. 
um, you know, you're going to run into problems with that, but there's a way to, uh, to do that, that doesn't cut things off from their connections, from their roots, from their con context that honors those contexts. And that involves a little bit more work, uh, as far as historical education, engagement with the histories and stories and just, uh, struggles that these communities and cultures and environments have gone through and are, are continuing to go through. And the, the connections that that has, that that context has with those practices and those lessons, those, that wisdom, uh, not only is there this tendency to this cherry pick to take things without honoring their context or knowing their history, um, there's also a romanticiza romanticization of indigenous people and communities. Uh, and I know that the biocultural approach, you know, points to the fact that around the world, uh, indigenous territories have more biodiversity and, and than protected areas, but that doesn't mean that all indigenous communities and cultures have the same relationship with the environment as all others, that they all have the same practices. There's no monolithic, indigenous culture or wisdom. Um, and indigenous people are human beings. Uh, their communities are going through the same struggles as, as other communities targeted by marginalization around the world. And, uh, we have to I, uh, meet, uh, if, if our intention is to connect with indigenous practices or traditions, we have to meet, uh, the communities that we're engaging with at that level and that will look different for everyone but it also opens up this other possibility of of you know you don't have to reach across to uh, the amazon or somewhere else from where you are you're living in a unique environment if you're in a forest if you're in a grassland or a desert there's a there's an interbeing there there's a community there there's an ecosystem there an environment there there's a people there and there's a culture and a history there that you can connect directly with and you can concentrate your efforts and impact on reciprocity with, with that, uh, that place where you find yourself in the world and that that's just as meaningful and important and um, maybe is a more authentic way for you to connect with your cultural context and find a way to embody those things that you've seen in, in other cultures and practices in your own life and in your own culture. And, uh, that's a question that everybody has to ask, you know, for themselves. Um, yeah, I think I had one other point, but I, I lost it. It's, uh... Yeah, it's great. Um, and into being, um, one of the invitations for viewing the world that way is that it's all about the relationships. It's all about seeing everything as a sacred whole um, and trusting really in the orchestrating intelligence of the world. And the psychedelic experience, of course, brings us into this state of, of gnosis, of like embodied, immediate felt sense of, of connection to the rest of the world. And you talked about that a little bit earlier, which I want to bring up again. It's this idea that um, once the experience is over, we come back into this societal structure that um, we, we've, we've been born in. And, you know, it depends for everyone where they're at, but it can might also 
often feel like that's a completely different world that we're coming back to. Um, what are ways that people can bridge those two worlds? What are ways, and you talked about action earlier, um, mm -hmm. how can people bridge that psychedelic experience into changing that narrative or changing that societal structure that they come back to, to more better reflect the, the interbeing that they felt during their experience? That's a big question and there's probably millions of different answers to it, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that. There are so many answers to that, but I think the one that, that has the most salience for me, that's the most, that's been the most impactful for me is having a daily practice uh, and a daily spiritual practice, but it doesn't have to be uh, religious. Um, one of my teachers, uh, Bede Griffiths, what, who, who was a, a monk, um, used to say that even an atheist can have a relationship with God if they're dedicated entirely to truth, to justice. If, the, if you're dedicated to something and you have a consistent practice every day, uh, that is how you will see those those changes come w even against your will uh like against your what you think are your your tendencies and um despite or in spite of the feeling of alienation that you might have because of your cultural context um uh that that having a daily practice of some kind a contemplative practice um or, you know, a body practice, something like that is where you learn and, and actually embody and change and, and integrate that different way of seeing, uh, and experiencing the world into your, into your experience of, of your, your daily life and your mundane relationships, your relationships with your friends and family and your local community. Uh, and that that's where the real psychedelic work is. And, uh, and also, of course, doing something with uh, with the land where you are, having a relationship. If it's on your windowsill, you have some plants. Uh, if you have a garden, if you're able to have a community garden, if you're able to do do something that keeps you in constant, regular relationship with other beings, with with, uh, with that relationship and interdependence, interbeing that you are speaking to keeping yourself in that, having ways that you are engaged in that every day, every moment, all the time, keeps that understanding fresh and embodied. And, and it's a lot less likely that, that you'll be totally, uh, you know, re encompassed or recaptured by that feeling of alienation and disconnection. Um, and then from there, it's also like, in what, what ways are you, uh, integrating that into your work, into the the projects that you're involved in, into the actions that you take beyond just your personal practice, your personal life. Um, yeah, beautiful. There is kind of this dance between the internal, you know, the, the, the soul seeking of harmony and unity. Um, and we're constantly dancing with the external world that constantly feels like it's both pushing us away and welcome us in and like this cosmic embrace. We're constantly interfacing with the world in many different ways. Like how I'm sitting in my chair right now is interfacing with the external world. Um, and so how we interface 
um, between our inner world and the external world is really ground zero for psychedelic integration. Um, and there are some, uh, some cultures that talk about this concept of the sacred space, which is um, the space between an exhale and an inhale. And they call mm. that the sacred space because it's, the, it's where trust in the world and ourselves and, um, you know, the, the web of life really comes in. It's, you know, the, the pause between the exhale and inhale is, uh, you know, the, the space of trust in the cosmic intelligence and trust in the living world around us. Um, and mm. it's a beautiful space of, for example, integrating into being into our daily life. It's exploring that sacred space between the breaths and, and what's living there and, and exploring all our relationships from that very small space that we often forget. You know, I, I personally forget about it all the time, but it's also an opportunity invitation to like maybe pay attention for five minutes a day and, and feeling what's in that sacred space and what is it telling us. Um, and we've talked about this in in a previous call, but you you had some really interesting insights around um, that healing our trauma isn't the whole thing. Um, it's our whole community and the world that's connected to ourselves and others. So healing is always uh, a societal thing. So it doesn't make sense to uh, link it all to the individual. So um, you had uh, shared that, you know, the therapy model is, is focused on that. It's focused on the individual. You need to heal, you need to transform. And in the psychedelic space, there's a lot of language around that too. It's around your personal journey. It's like around like, you know, healing your trauma. And that's all great, but it's also within the context of interbeing. Um, what is a bridge between those two seemingly incompatible words into being an individual look like from a therapeutic transformative uh, model? Beautiful question. Uh, I think one one uh, one point I just wanted to to mention before I get into that uh, is that reciprocity, I think, is only something that can happen within that interbeing space. And so, there's not really reciprocity from the global north or from the psychedelic industry to indigenous communities just because there's a a fund or or some sort of philanthropic endeavor doesn't create reciprocity. Uh, I learned about reciprocity um, as a young anthropologist from uh, Catherine Allen, who is uh, an amazing ethnographer who studied with uh, the uh, Quechua community in Sonko in Peru and talked about Aini, which is often translated as reciprocity, as Quechua concept of uh of interbeing and the, and it's it's not about give and take necessarily um but a recognition that that sort of space between the breath is sort of every everything is existing within that space all the time that there's a constant push and pull and sharing and uh of energy of uh, a circulation of energy within every system and that it's never perfectly harmonious, but we recognize our place within that and see where imbalance exists at every moment and how, and, and committing yourself to reciprocity is just being committed to writing that imbalance wherever you're able to, and it's not ever finished. And, and also reciprocity only takes place 
between subjects who recognize each other as, you know, beings with personhood that are interdependent and um, necessarily it can't, it can't really happen between one entity that's extremely powerful and wealthy and another one that's totally uh, suppressed or oppressed and exploited. Uh, they're not on equal ground to have that reciprocal relationship. And so my work is about building our building something and working towards the possibility of reciprocity, but understanding that, that real, what real reciprocity looks like is, is much deeper than mm -hmm. that. And, isn't something that we can get to just with a, uh, a donation, but, um, to come back to what you're saying about, about therapy and the therapeutic model, uh, and you know, the individual versus the social, the communal, uh, I have another colleague, Adam, uh, Adam Andros, who, who is a PhD candidate who's, who worked at a, a retreat center for a long time. Uh, and, one of the things that he talks about is, is, you know, people, participants would, would comment on the different things that have uh, worked into their healing. Uh, why, why are they healed after those experiences and practices? And in the therapeutic model, we identify the, the trauma informed approach uh, as effective, you know, people connect with their trauma while, um, engaging with medicine, they might, might re-experience it. They might reintegrate it in a different way. They, they have an insight on it. They experience something from their childhood, uh, from the perspective of themselves as a child, they have some sort of personal insight. Maybe they have a, a meeting with another being, uh, another teacher. And, you know, that, that is something that can, can create healing and change in someone's life. Uh, and that's kind of what the, the therapy model is based around is like, if you're seeing a therapist, can you identify some of those things that are connected to your personal journey of self-actualization of, of self-healing? But another component, which I don't really see talked about uh, in, in the therapy space very much is the social aspect of it. And actually a lot of people that, that left these retreat centers would, would, report on being in a circle for the first time of people that care about each other for the first time in their life, being in a group where everyone was intimately, you know, concerned about each other's well-being, where you were worried about, you know, um, your effect on the land. So maybe there's like a, a dry toilet there because you're recycling everything. You're very conscious of the impact of all of your actions, everything you're consuming and producing on the land immediately around you and you're living in a, a very close community uh, of people who are all there to be vulnerable and, and have trust with each other. And then you have a teacher or, or a facilitator or practitioner who's engaging with you as an individual with such care and, and uh, is so concerned about, about your well-being. Everyone is there caring about each other. And that's just a totally alien experience for a lot of people. Maybe it's the first time they've ever felt it, or it's been since they were a child or, or something. And, and that, that is really what is healing everyone. And it's like, uh, it's not a either or, but like, that must be a, a very important part of it. And you can't really get that from going to a, 
therapist's office necessarily as an individual. Uh, but then again, like a, a lot of people that are getting into uh, providing psychedelic therapy, they can't necessarily have group retreats. Their clients want to be able to see them one-on-one. -on -one. So how do we, um, how do we effectively bridge those two different worlds and um, incorporate that social aspect? So the idea that, yes, you have personal traumas, but your traumas are not disconnected from the trauma of the community, of the environment, of the world, of other people, uh, the social system that you're in. Uh, is all connected to your well-being and your well-being is connected to the well-being of of the social system and healing itself is a social phenomenon and um, building community is the way to I think integrate that and for different therapists that might mean having a community of practitioners at least that clients can can experience and feel when they when they go there um, having syst community systems and support structures in place and building those and trying to to create a social sphere, a, a culture around whatever your practices. Um, and some people are experimenting with having more than one client uh, at a time. Maybe it's just two at a time. Like I, I had a, um, and it's not like you only have the group setting and in, in, uh, in indigenous uh, plant medicine spaces, there are one-on-one, -on -one, there's one-on-one -on -one healing that happens, but the, the understanding of, of the medicine and the healing is always in that context of social relationship and social relationship, not just between you and other human beings, but all beings, the land and, and it's a society of beings that includes non-human persons as well. And that that's just as important. Um, and you can certainly incorporate that in different ways into, into your practice and as a therapist, uh, find ways to um, honor that side of the healing process, which is uh, maybe what that looks like is just your relationship with the patient and have and, and understanding that that relationship is an important part of the healing. Um, I think a lot of people have that, but it's maybe not given as much weight as the the pharmaceutical mechanism of the bio uh, biochemical mechanism of the medicine, um, the, or even the psychoanalytical experience of, you know, connecting with the trauma, then the, the social side of it, uh, also has to, to have an equal, you know, part of that. Beautiful. Um, I wrote an article, um, a few years ago around how, psychedelic businesses can use nature as an inspiration, kind of like using biomimicry mm. in some way. Um, and what you're talking about really inspires me to explore that a little bit further with you is this idea of the psychedelic space and the therapeutic model, looking at nature, you know, as the most amazing designer in the universe, probably mother nature teach, can teach us a lot about harmony and interbeing and connection and community. I can't think of a better teacher. Um, do you have other inspirations around, um, you know, how the psychedelic space, like either for businesses or for individuals on this journey or, or organizations or the therapeutic uh, ways of doing things that could be inspired by nature 
um, what are maybe elements of nature that we could be inspired of to create more harmonious into being led spaces? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's, um, that that question really touches on a lot of what we've, we've been talking about with Erie and, and my approach to philanthropy, to indigenous advocacy, to conservation. It's all about taking those lessons from nature. And those lessons are lessons of relationship of interconnection. Uh, if you are, you know, if you're intending to intervene in a, in a natural system, but you don't recognize that that's an intelligent system, which is operating by relationship and exchange and cooperation between all the different, uh, intelligences that, uh, that are in that ecosystem, then your interventions are going to be harmful or ineffective. Uh, so having that recognition before you even start, uh, anything is, is important. And I think it can look a lot of different ways and in different contexts, but a lot of the, of really kind of to trying to hammer home that, that message, maybe not hammer, but like massage, um, or just really, uh, emphasize and, um, communicate that idea of interbeing, which is so hard to embody because we just don't, our cultural conditioning and all of our surroundings are telling us that that's not the case there, that interbeing is just the spiritual or new age concept, or, or it's not part of the material world, but actually, if you study the material world, you see that there, that it's fundamentally, um, interdependent and interconnected with, with all, all material is, is only existing in that sort of relationship. And you see that how that looks in different natural systems, um, in the forest, in the grassland, in the desert, uh, you see how all of the microorganisms and microbiomes are connected and mediating exchange between other organisms and larger organisms, the macro, and that that exchange of information, communication of messages, sharing of resources, distribution of resources is how it all works. And, and are there examples that we can point to and, Rem that remind us that there is personhood and intelligence within these systems, like um, the sensitivity of flowers. Like I like to talk about different, you know, symbiotic and, and mutualistic relationships in nature and biomimicry, as you mentioned, these fascinating displays of intelligence and communication in different natural systems. And, and it just, it starts to help chip away at that conditioning that we have to not recognize that and not see that because the, the basic assumption of the biomedical approach is that there isn't any agency in nature. Um, maybe human beings have agency and then maybe a few higher mammals, um, maybe an octopus. Uh, but you know, we have to draw the line somewhere. And of course, plants don't have agency and there's no intelligence beyond that. But, but really that assumption is cultural. It's not scientific. And we could just as easily assume that everything has agency and that that's just a basic assumption that actually explains things a lot better than saying that there isn't anything like that going on. And you can see it everywhere. I mean, you can see it in, uh, I just mentioned like 
I think it's the evening primrose. There's been a, there was a study in Tel Aviv that, uh, showed that their flowers, flower petals are like ears and they actually listen to vibrations and they can recognize when their pollinator is near and their specific pollinators, wing beats produce a specific vibration that they recognize. And then they produce more nectar so that they're rewarded if they, if they come to the flower and that that's very specific to that one pollinator. It's not just a random vibration hitting the flower. And there's a million examples like that, uh, even more complicated and, and fascinating that just makes it hard to accept that, that, you know, it's just, um, devoid of agency that, that, that there's just uh, sort of random interactions happening. And, and if you, if you are able to sort of be reminded of that enough and see enough examples of that, it, it helps with that embodiment and, uh, in conjunction with your practice and everything in, in getting you to a place where you really do experience the world and see plants and other organisms and as intelligent or as persons. Um, and I think that that will just naturally sort of have an effect on the things that you do. And I don't know if I can s predict exactly how that would look in your particular case, but, uh, building things that reflect that. And for me, that means if I'm going to build, uh, an organization or a program, I want it to be structured in a way where the power is distributed to the grassroots, because I know that that's how natural systems work and that that produces better results. So you're going to have a better yield. Uh, if you structure your food system that way, it's going to be healthier. It's going to be more resilient. It's going to have, higher yields of more nutritious foods rather than something that's a monoculture that's linear, that's top down, which is easy to conceptualize. If you're coming from this place of, uh, alienation where you, you have this assumption of, of agency that is just coming from you and maybe some other people, but that means you have to control things from a, a certain, uh, position and, and there's no reason not to, um, if you flip that and, and see that actually the way that things work well in the ecosystem and natural systems is in this root system, this mycelial system, that's the best way to, to share and distribute resources. How can you reflect that structure and the things that you're doing? And so for me, that means working in community and collaboration, supporting the autonomy of people at every level and, and making sure that things are, are being informed by, the network by the grassroots, um, by the community. Mm -hmm. And what a relief it is, you know, what a relief it is to know that we're all connected and that, mm. uh, in, in collaboration and community, we have greater strength and resiliency and all the good things. And, um, you know, I think we're living in an age that we're starting to reframe. I got this to, we got this. And the mm. psychedelic experience for me has been, extremely nourishing to rewire myself to not have that lone wolf approach and, and be more in community and be more in relationships and, and uh, be more aware of the relationships that exist all around me. And I'm finding that the more work I'm doing within myself to clear the space for that connection to come in and inform me and instruct me, the more I'm feeling at ease, I'm feeling more creative, 
I'm feeling uh, happier and more joyful, but I'm also feeling a lot more resilient because I don't feel like I'm doing this by myself. I'm connected to all the people that are doing um, the kind of work that, that we're connected to and in and, and community as well. Like we have a beautiful community that's forming locally here. And, um, you know, for the first time, I really feel like what community can really bring to the table. And um, that's really helped me uh, a lot in, in my, my path. Um, and mm. coming back to the psychedelic experience itself, uh, you talked about this a, a little bit earlier around kind of like integrating that experience of unity through daily actions, daily practice. Uh, and I found for myself that the psychedelic experience is a little bit like an elastic band. Um, you have this really powerful experience and it becomes, you know, it stretches your elastic band to a new level and then you come back home and it kind of comes back to the default, but like a little bit more stretched. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, as you do more work and doesn't necessarily have to be psychedelics, the more work you do, the more the elastic band can stretch. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, kind of this transition that we're we're having socially right now uh, to transforming these old paradigms of competition, um, lack of reciprocity and right relationship, you know, those type of things uh, into this new paradigm of, of interbeing? And, and what are the, what is the beautiful world that you're imagining possible here? Thank you for that question. And also the, the relief that you expressed made me feel more, more relieved and, and relaxed because that, you know, that's part of it too, is, is the trust and surrender and ability to, to recognize that you're not just uh, acting alone and, and that you have a endless um, capacity for compassion and, and there's energy and support there and, and, uh, mm-hmm. enjoy, you know, celebration and play another thing. like everything we're talking about is so serious. Um, but communities, when they get together, you know, they have, they play, they have, they make art and uh, music and, um, and that's something that animals do, uh, all sorts of different animals, even insects play and, you know, environmental or evolutionary biologists have to explain that it's serving some other goal and it's not really just play for the sake of play, but it's really hard to defend that. If you, if you look at how many examples there are, and there's a great piece of writing by David Graeber about this called what's the point if we can't have fun. And it's talking about how play is sort of like this intrinsic fundamental, um, part of the nature of, of everything and, and everything is at play and, even electrons are dancing and like, uh, there's something there and it's, it's easy to lose that if you're just, um, dwelling on the crises and the, the, you know, the dark places that you see things going and and fighting against it and being exhausted and not resting. And, uh, it's really important to, to remember that relief so much. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up in terms of the joy and happiness and um you know if you don't like the old model create a new one you know and live it and i i truly believe that uh, as society uh, expands and grows that more and more will have um free time for expression free time for creativity 
um, and having the right community spaces and the, the, the really the networks necessary to support that in a beautiful way in everyday life. It's definitely been a part of my journey to step more into joy and happiness and, um, and yeah, healing doesn't always have to be so serious. Yeah. That's another Alan Watts, uh, quote was, you know, you can be sincere, but not serious. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I like that. And, and I, I need help and re reminders to, to, to be joyful and, and to, you know, to play and, uh, coming back to, to your other question though, which, you know, sends my mind in a lot of serious directions, just thinking about, is there really a change happening and at what level and, and are we really moving in this direction? And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think that, uh, we are in a really tumultuous time and there's a lot of opportunity. There's, there's a lot of disruption and that's where the opportunity is. And, and there's a lot of immiseration. Um, there's a lot of crisis and, and, and that could be increasing and w coming along with that is the, the necessary pressure to change those, those systems and structures. And, uh, I, I am optimistic and hopeful about how people will respond to that. And if, uh, if we're all trying to build things, not just make individual choices that, that we feel good about, but anything that we do collectively do it in a way that honors that desire or, or that that world that you do want to get to the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible um charles eisenstein great book about that uh and it's like um yeah it's 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 something that's connected to everything that we do and think about and and I, and if you're if that's your intention if that's your you know, your heart's intention and it's sincere, not necessarily serious. Uh, you know, that that's important and that that is meaningful and impactful. And then also your actions, uh, are the other side of that and, and your impact, the impact of your actions, uh, and good intentions are, don't really matter if you're still doing the wrong thing. Um, but it's about trying to align the, those and, um, and there's another Charles Eisenstein piece that comes to mind where I, I believe he was asked a similar question and, uh, he tells a story about a woman who's, uh, who a very sick elderly person became into their, came into their care and they basically had to spend every moment taking care of this person, washing them and, and feeding them and giving them their medicine. And they spent, you know, over a decade of this, and that's like all that they had time to do. What is that? What impact does that have on all these crises that we're talking about? These ecological crises, these cultural, systemic, economic problems. You could argue that she wasn't using her energy in the most meaningful and impactful way. She should have. That all of us should just be dedicated to a cause, and even if you have to sacrifice personal relationships, it's ultimately serving a greater good. But mm -hmm. I think what that story is supposed to, uh, 
encourage you to, to ask is, is maybe that is actually just as important and meaningful and impactful for that one relationship of care to happen has an impact on the world. And it's not necessarily so easy to, to, to make that calculation and say that like any interpersonal relationship is not, uh, as important as this greater cause that you're serving or these bigger changes that you want to see. And even if you have to kill yourself to, to, um, serve that greater good, you know, that that's ultimately worth more than this individual or this small act of, of care, of devotion, of, of dedication, of selflessness. But really, I think it's not an either or proposition and, and, it's just as uh, beautiful and meaningful for somebody to, to dedicate and serve them uh, one other person in that way, uh, caring for someone as it is for you to be dedicated to whatever your work is or, or whatever cause that you're, you know, serving. And it doesn't have to look just like this kind of calculation that you might make. Uh, and so that really opens up the, the possibilities for what you can do with your time and energy, um, you know, in a beautiful way, it, it can just, that's still a, a worthwhile way to, to live your life is even if it's just in that localized kind of context. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, we like to say in Nectarada every day is a ceremony because it really is that those small things every day that, I personally believe transmit one degree shifts into the world and the one degree shift is, you know, you have a plane going from New York to San Francisco. If you change it by one degree, it ends up in Alaska. Mm. Um, and from that lens of interbeing those, those small relationships that you mentioned, like from that lens of interbeing really does have a larger impact on the whole system, right? It's like the ripple effect, the butterfly effect. Um, and so, uh, one thing I, I learned in my, my journey is I used to have a lot of social anxiety or a lot of climate anxiety. It's called solastalgia. Glenn Albrecht mm. um, uh, coined the term in 2017 to talk about this idea of uh, the, the feeling of unease that we feel within ourselves when our, our home is at risk. And he coined that word because of climate change and because of um, sort of the anxiety, the social anxiety that's rising around that. And I, I struggled with that for many years until I, I did a ayahuasca ceremony and, and I was going through the experience and grandmother told me like, don't worry, I'm going to be fine. You know, and there was a whole story that came around that as well, that um, it's too long for this, this podcast, but it really helped shift my, uh, my anxiety into more of like uh, ease and relaxation mm. and rest and trust. And ever since then, I've had this perspective of, you know, I'll just do whatever I can every day and in every little moment to add positivity to the world and add, you know, what I believe is, is helpful to the world and, and the capacity I have. Um, and so I, I invite anyone who's watching this that really does care about these things is to um, not have an attachment to things becoming quote unquote good. Uh, there's, there's no guarantee in the world, but what we can do is is hold that flame until the very end and and feel very at peace around what we've been able to contribute to that greater story um, and finding solace in that. And um, 
yeah, I just wanted to share that personal story around that because there's a, there's this beautiful idea of interbeing and higher consciousness and new paradigm and there's that micro element of that from within our own psychedelic experiences when we leave the experience and we go back home. And then there's also this macro one that we've been talking about, this kind of idealized version of the world that we all strive for. Um, but there's also a lot of beauty in accepting that it's not necessarily going to happen overnight. There's a lot of gentleness that happens when you come to accepting that. And I believe that the core of that is uh, essentially just accepting life and death, really. There's a very deep uh, medicine, at least for me, around accepting death and not being attached to results. And I'm finding a lot of relaxation in that in that for me. Um, do you want to add to that uh, for yourself? Like what has been your relationship to that as you're trying to change paradigm and you're trying to change yourself and change your relationships and relationship to that um, desire for a better world? Thank you for, for sharing your, your story about that and, and just the reminder uh, not to be attached to outcomes. It's really important. Um, gives us the ability to be creative and, and free. Um, and I think that's also a natural part of that play. And I do care deeply and have like a serious conviction about the things that I, that I work on and do. But I think another part of that surrender uh, of that letting go of the results is connected to humility. And I think being humble, um, being humbled by our position in, in this interbeing, understanding that, that relief that you touched on, that you can feel when you realize you're supported by and connected to um, all life also comes with um, a humility because you realize that you're only this one um, small piece of awareness uh, in a greater whole and that there's a wisdom and intelligence within that, which you, uh, you know, you, you can trust in that and, and understand that that's much greater than any understanding that you can have as a individual ego. And that, that could be a source of, of relief and, and just having that attitude of humility in the things that you do is another way of acknowledging that you're not in control of the outcomes and the results because you, you aren't. And, and, you know, that's a part of control that you have to let go of. And I think we also get out of our own way in a sense, we, we avoid maybe making certain mistakes or repeating mistakes. If we have that attitude of, of humble in our work uh, and, and yeah, not being attached to it in or identifying ourselves with it, it in that way. Uh, allows us to be more teachable, to be more open to learning and changing, and then also adapting and adjusting. And so with Erie, with the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative, we, I started developing it in 2020. And like almost a year later, we launched it. And then now it's another year and a half, almost two years later. That has been a process of constantly learning and adjusting and it still will continue to be that and it's organic that's that's an organic way to to be is is um not is constantly in flux and changing and and that also means yeah you don't know exactly how things will turn out and 
all you can do is is make the the decisions that you are making moment to moment and acting and uh if you if you're going to act you, at a certain point you have to let go of that because otherwise you'd be paralyzed by that uh and that's a really important lesson that i am constantly relearning and re-experiencing and encountering all the time <laughs> likewise yeah um, what are ways that people, and thank you so much for sharing today. That was a beautiful conversation. I really appreciated your um, level of depth and wisdom and um, humbleness as well. And, and just like a host of different qualities that um, I really respect in you. And thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, what are ways that people, me. yeah, what are ways that people, our pleasure, what are ways that people can get involved in Erie and, um, you know, from a business perspective and also individuals, like what are the different entry points to, to supporting you? Thank you so much, Pascal. It's really been a, a pleasure for me. And um, I, uh, I'm going to work on my podcast setup because I now realize the sun is setting here and losing the light. Um, so my, my lighting scheme is all, is, is falling apart but uh it, it's all about the small relationships Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> i know I'm, I'm staying in relationship with the sun right now because you're seeing nice uh, you're seeing it, it change <laughs> um with erie you know another big piece of erie for me is that it's open source so you don't have to support the erie program or chakruna you can go direct we have the network on chakruna-iri.org uh, org and uh you can connect directly with any of the organizations that have capacity and directly give donations to an individual group, community, or project. Uh, or you can give to Erie, uh, the Erie program, which gets distributed evenly to each of our indigenous community partners. Uh, donating money is a big, it's a big part of it, obviously. And, and if any, if people have that ability, you know, that really that material, difference is, is what affects these projects and allows them to continue. And it's just a lack of resources. Uh, the projects are there, the people are there. Uh, and so sometimes it is that simple. Um, but I know everybody has limited money and limited time and, and resources and energy. And I think what we touched on earlier is that it, it, it's not a waste of your energy just to be able to live a, a life with dignity and, and support yourself or, or or your family. And if that's all you were able to do with your time, that's worthwhile. You can, you can start to, to try and practice that reciprocity and relationship with your own, uh, with your own self, your own community, your own environment and land where you are. Um, and that, that helps Erie, uh, also just staying engaged with Chakruna, Chakruna's work, um, you know, getting into our newsletter, staying in touch with what's going on with Erie. We do publish updates uh, almost every week and we are working on a few different video projects with some of our partners, just ways to highlight the projects that they're working on, the struggles that they're going through, their perspectives on the psychedelic renaissance, on reciprocity. Uh, and those are educational materials for the public. So if you, watch them if you engage with them if you share them that's helpful uh and just if you heard if you kind of understand the the message that Erie's 
propagating the, the idea of, of how things should be structured and built, what reciprocity looks like, how authority and, and power can be built into a program that gives it to the communities, to the grassroots. You see that and you look for other other um, organizations, other projects that embody those same sort of principles. Um, you know, that's that would be beautiful for me if, if a million initiatives started that we're all trying to do that in a different way and it doesn't have to be Erie, IRI or, or Chakruna. Uh, and so there's, a, there's so many different ways that, that people can get involved uh, beyond just the donation, although that is a very important part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for people out there that are, you know, people or businesses, you know, there's multiple ways to chip in a little bit of money to Erie or like add a piece in your checkout to donate when you have an event or you have an offering, you can give a percentage. Um, there's lots of ways to, to give and, and um, start to live reciprocity. So thank you so much, Joseph, for, for everything and take care of yourself. Thanks, Pascal. Really appreciate it. Take care. You too.